Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 197 with my guest Peyton McDonald. Peyton is a percussionist um, living in New Jersey, I believe, and Peyton went to the Eastman School of Music with, uh, was there with Jason Truding and some other folks. Uh, Peyton is a tabla player, but is also a, a, an accomplished member player in his own right, but has been just released an album uh, by Anthony Braxton. That's really striking. I, I really recommend you check out Peyton's uh, Murma recording of, of Braxton's music. Um, but Peyton also, I would say, is an experimental marimbist in that he is constantly trying out different sticks and mallets and other sorts of approaches to, to sound making on the marimba. So we talk a lot about that. We also talk about the unfortunate uh, emergence on social media of uh, the marimba police um, who are currently trying to give Peyton tickets for... Uh, evidently crimes he's committed against the marimba but anyway it was great to chat chat with Patton, Peyton and get to catch up with him his project uh, the Braxton project is amazing so check it out okay enjoy this conversation without further ado Peyton McDonald enjoy well hey I, I let's gavel this to order uh, Peyton McDonald I appreciate you joining me here um, I want to start this is a concert honesty podcast so I I hope that uh, you're okay with getting into some 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 prickly stuff and if at any point you're like, nope, don't want to talk about that. Just say it. Um, but I wanted to start off with a little bit of uh, asking for forgiveness from you. Um, I have been seeing your posts online uh, where you're experimenting with a ton of different mallets. And I've been seeing some, uh, what I'm going to, what I'm going to label as um, distress from you from some of the reactions you've been getting. And I wanted to say that if anything I ever said contributed to that, please let me apologize um, there was one post in particular I commented on where you were sort of like very, I mean, you have a very, you move a lot when you play anyway, but there was a very, it was very spastic is the, in your improvising. And it, it looked like, I feel like I play all the time. I always feel like I'm just jabbing at shit and I don't like, I'm just hoping to Christ I hit the right thing. And so that was my only intent. There was no no other intent there other than to say, like, I see a lot of myself and what's happening here. But I think Peyton's making it up, and I think I'm doing it subconsciously, and that's just how I look. So anyway, that's how I wanted to start today. And I'd love to get into your the marimba police sort of aspect of what's been happening in your life uh, recently. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to start with that. I'm sorry if I contributed to any um, distress on your part. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I... The thing is, you know, I, I think it's important for all of us to keep in mind that any kind of conversation that we're having on social media, there, there's a weird wall and barrier that's always there. Unless it's with, you know, if it's with, if my wife and I are talking or my mom is someone that, you know, I'm really close to on a daily basis, then it's a little different because we kind of know that anything we say or post or whatever, that there's, there's a whole bunch of like real world real-time context behind it mm-hmm. so I, I no no not at all I mean Josh you've always been I mean we're on the same team you know we're we're working toward we're always exploring music in various ways through commissions through our performing through everything so absolutely not and you know yeah I can see I guess I put up a post at some point that may have sounded a little defensive but I really didn't mean it that way I'm actually delighted that there has been a response mm. to the the stuff I've put up. Yeah. Some people really hate it. You know, I, there are a few people put in all caps, you know, this is crap. This is not music. Mm. I'm actually super happy about that because I, I think that means we're actually having a conversation about something. Mm. And 
I'm convinced that if I was with that person in a room and if we meet up at PASIC, we'd have a great time together and, and the respect would be mutual and we'd get along just fine. You know, social media, it does a lot of beautiful things. It reconnects us to lost friends and loved ones. And I mean, people have found kidney donors through social media. It's helped foster d- democratic movements in countries. It, it can be a force for good, but like anything in the human experience, there's a very dark side to it too. And, and I do think there's often a real breakdown in communication. Um, yeah. So I really, I have, I'm actually, if I ever sounded defensive, then I have to apologize for that. Cause I'm really not, I'm, I'm, I am fully confident in what I'm doing. I'm really excited about it. Things that I've been working towards for almost 30 years are coming into focus in a way they have not really before. I feel like my creative powers are sort of on full force. The only limitation I have is I just don't simply have enough hours in the day to do everything I want to do, but I'm producing a, phenomenal amount of work. It's coming out in a flood and I'm, I'm growing in ways that are just beautiful. And yeah, some people, uh, the thing is I get so many messages from people who really like it mm-hmm. and they're really, they're curious about what I'm doing and they're supportive. And sometimes they say, you know, I'm not sure I like the piece, but I like the spirit of what you're doing. Um, but a lot of times they actually like the piece itself. And then I get some haters and that's totally fine. I'm, I'm absolutely happy about that. I have no problem. with. Well, you this. have a more, you have a more generous spirit with haters than I do. I'm very insecure as <clears throat> fundamentally as a person. Um, and I think that, you know, I, to me, I'm jealous of the people I'm jealous of humanity a hundred years from now. Like I, I'm grateful for being alive now. Don't get me wrong, but I see social media as this amazing tool. Like all the things you just said, like, so has been able to raise money for food packing. I only do it through Facebook. I don't even go on like Instagram. It's Facebook. And so, yeah, I can't sit here and be just disingenuous and say, let's just burn, burn the whole, throw the baby out with the bathwater. But people for a hundred years from now, they're going to be like, Oh man, I can't believe those dummies used to talk to each other on Facebook. You know, it's like, it's like us being like, you can't people, I can't believe people used to have to like put a quarter in a phone, you know? And like we just can't imagine a society like that. And that was like a half a person ago, you know? And I, so anyway, I just, I, I feel like I'm, I'm bummed a little bit at our sort of drive by, uh, humanity right now on, on social media. And it, so when I see, listen, everything you post, it's not like I understand it either all the time. Like sometimes I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Like, but it's (laughs) like, I'm, I just am not, I'm of the generation where like, if like, if you don't have like, again, it's like, I can identify the spirit is there. It's like, all right, great. Like, I don't like, there's no disingenuineness coming from you. So like your confidence, all of that stuff is there. And I, I would venture to say you, you have similar feelings about so percussion and some things that we put out or things your friends put out. Like you just released an Anthony Braxton album. I'll bet you don't love everything that Anthony Braxton's put out. I mean, you're not a crazy person, right? <laughs> right. I, well, I don't think I've heard it all. My God, talk about prolific. I, I, I look like uh, I, I look pretty um, unprolific. <laughs> but yeah, you know, and, and the, the other thing that's interesting to remember too, um, it, or to, to note is that I am posting some of this stuff in different communities. Mm. So for example, I'm a member of the, the couple marimba groups that I think we're both in the, um, what is it? All marimba players and the gigging marimbas. And then, I'm in a marimba group. Who the hell let me yeah. in a marimba group? 
Oh, you, well, I think you just ask to join and they'll they'll link you in there. Oh, they need to think twice about that. I'm the I'm the last person anybody should be asking Marimba questions about, or I'm the last person well, the, anybody all, should be looking to for Marimba stuff. The the all Marimba group is is a pretty big one too. They're mm-hmm. about ten thousand, almost eleven thousand okay. people in that group mm-hmm. from all over the world, um, and that's where I tend to get the most engagement. That mm-hmm. group is fairly active; like people are posting stuff every day and. And it ranges everything from like stuff I'm doing all the way to people playing Super Mario Brothers on the Marimba. You know, it's like a whole range of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also am a member of some uh, free improvisation groups and contemporary classical groups. And what's interesting is when, you know, if I put the same post on the Marimba group and then I put the same post on the free improvisation group, the reactions are oftentimes quite different. Mm-hmm. So the stuff where I might be, you know, some of the posts I put up are quite inside marimba playing, but some of it is quite noisy and and weird, you know, according to standard like academic norms. But when I put that stuff on the free improv groups, people love it. There, there are no haters because that's a language they understand. I mean, part of it is, part of it is, is different communities of musicians have different things they value. Right. So Mm -hmm. in the free improvisation world, people really value, experimentation and they really value pushing the boundaries of what your instrument is or or can be you know so like my friend billy martin when i put up stuff of me doing really different things on the marimba he loves it because that's the world he lives in and he's also he's always trying to push boundaries of drum set playing and percussion Mm -hmm. playing this is billy martin of modesky martin wood yeah. yeah. And um, he's always, you know, he's an instrument builder. And of course, he's a composer. He's also a visual artist. And so, you know, I spend a fair amount of time looking at visual art. And, and I have a friend, a couple friends, Billy's one who is a professional visual artist. And I know uh, Mike Winkleman, who goes by Beeple, who's a visual artist. And, you know, one thing about the visual art world is that they tend to push the envelope pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And Oftentimes, if you look back historically, you see, like, if you look at minimalism, minimalism first developed in the visual art world, and the music world came to it kind of following. The early, and, yeah, the early presenters were like Paula Cooper Gallery, and, you know, like, they were, they were teaming up with dance, you know, and Ana Teresa de Kiersmacher, like, like choreographers, like, the, yeah, the dance, the visual arts, uh, and I would consider dance a visual art as well, in terms of where the Venn diagrams overlap. Music is an oddly conservative sort of bedfellow there with all of those um, not outwardly conservative, but just a little bit like we're going to take our time, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely right. And, you know, my, my opinion about the marimba world is that for whatever reason, that instrument has been co-opted by the classical academic establishment. And that's not a bad thing. You know, we, we now have a fantastic standard repertoire. We have all the classic Japanese pieces, reflections on the nature of water, et cetera, et cetera. We also have now a highly sophisticated and evolved technique for engaging with that repertoire and realizing it, um, which I spent decades working on. You know, I went to Lee Stevens camp, even though I play Burton Grip now, I, I was a diehard Stevens player and I played through all that standard rep, the Musser etudes, all that stuff I went through. I performed it. Um, But along the way, what has happened is that the sort of ultra, ultra refinement has gotten to a place, in in my opinion, where I feel like the marimba has gotten boxed in a little bit. Mm, mm. And I guess I've taken it upon myself. I've really, this is a project I've been working on for almost 20 years, but I sort of just went public with it in a more aggressive way over the last six months. I've sort of taken it upon myself to break open that box a little bit. And some people 
part of it is some people haven't seen me play the other stuff. So there, there might be a perception because it is true. It is true in the free improv world. You get someone like Sylvie Cavussier, for example, or, um, uh, you know, any number of, of fantastic drummers I can think of, like Tyshawn Sori, who have phenomenal technique and chops and they have they know the repertoire inside and out and they choose to go beyond that into other kinds of expression on the instrument. You also have, let's be honest, in the free improv world, you have some people who don't have great chops. Mm-hmm. The reason they play weird is because it's all they can do. Mm. Like, they actually can't hit the right notes if you put a piece of music in front of them mm. where that is required. Mm. That's not the approach I've taken. I've always really uh, admired the musicians who first kind of laid down their classical framework or, and or jazz framework like Braxton. You know, he paid his dues for a long time, learning standards in all 12 keys, transcribing bird solos, you know, the whole thing. Like he built that vocabulary and he built his vocabulary with contemporary classical music, studying Stockhausen scores. Mm. He understands the music of Steve Reich. Like he's been through all that stuff, not to mention Bach, Beethoven and, you know, Palestrina and all the rest of it. Um, and then he chose to go in a whole new directions. And so that's, you know, that's what I, but I can see if someone hasn't actually taken the time to go to my website and read my bio and seeing what I've done, they might think that like, I can't play any right notes <laughs> when in fact I've done that for decades. And I actually have recordings out, you know, of pieces I've commissioned from other composers where I'm not improvising at all. And it's very precise and meticulous, you know, mm-hmm. but the thing is, Josh, there, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of marimba players out there who can do that really, really well. And, many of them better than I can. I just don't think that's why I was put on this planet. Well, one of the, I, I, sorry, I mean, sorry to interrupt, Peyton. Well, one of the things you're talking, as you were talking, like I'm reminded a little bit, we just, you know, a lot of talk in society right now is around systems and sort of what institutions do well and what they don't do well and, and how we, do you burn the institution down? Do you try to fix it from the inside? Like who's responsible for all that? You know, I, we talk about music as being this uh, sort of conservative-ish thing, and I feel like, like when you talk about the marimba, for example, being co-opted by the education system, like as percussionists, like I talked with John Beck, actually, um, <clears throat> your teacher at Eastman, and we were talking about his origins. You know, he came right out of World War II, for God's sakes, and he talked about you know NARD, the National Association of Rudimental Drummers, and the history of of the education system as far as percussion studies in this country goes it's right out of war it's right out of the military everything you know everything your rudimental snare drum chops like it wasn't until recently within a person ago that we changed from traditional to matched grip as sort of the like maybe this is you know we got to play mallets too (laughs) you know and played everything trad isn't going to cut it um you know, the people who were teaching that and started that are still alive. And when I think of the marimba, it's like I learned about the sort of African roots of the marimba after I learned about how deeply it was embedded in Japanese culture and Japanese music. Like that was my end to the marimba. And then I got Steve Reich later. And then I learned, like I had some geo playing in my undergrad with Bernard Walma, but like as a student, I had never really pieced all that together as like a natural progression in the way that evolution happens, the way music and instruments get disseminated. But in the education system, the marimba is the only way percussionists can play pitched mount, pitched instruments, other than the timpani. Like, yep. and, it, and so like, and the, 
anyway, it's just this like super complicated thing. And I, and I feel like you are of a generation and I am too, where if you're the guy that's doing the weird thing, like steel drums or tabla in your, in your case as well, um, that it's like, it's like this weird science experiment that school is sort of like, yeah, you can do that here if you want, but we need you to go to class piano and learn how to play like these fingerings. And it's just like, what does that have to do with anything? Like what, you know, what, what am I doing here? And it wasn't until I got into, you know, my first gig with Matmos and so percussion right out of Yale, like I'm wearing my like shirt tucked in and my tux pants, like feeling like this is my first gig in the real world. And Martin Schmidt from Matmos walks over, hands me two pots and pans, one, you know, pot and a pan and is like Tito Puente baby and turns around and walks away. And I'm like, I'm not going to improvise Tito Puente. I just played Rogashanti a week ago, you know? And he was just like, Shows tomorrow. Look him up. And I was like, <laughs> and so like I was just over there like yeah, I got you know playing. Anyway, just to say like, why don't we talk about like what? Why is school the way it is? And like, how do we change it? How do we change it so that people, people who are in the club, start to understand that what you're doing is not this weird thing? You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's really not. I mean, I don't think I've produced a single recording that is as radical as stuff that was sometimes being made in the 1960s. You know, it's really not that crazy in the grand scheme of things. But I will say what's happening in the Marino world sometimes, and this might get me in a little bit of hot water, but I do think there's a sort of solipsism going on where I know what I like and I like what I know. Mm. know, That's kind of the thing. And if someone comes in and there, there's a completely different paradigm that, that's that's moved upon that. It, it yeah, it, it, it can be a little dis, disjointed. But you know, my my situation was different in two important ways, Josh. One is that I grew up in Idaho, and I did not grow up in a musical family. My father was a nuclear engineer. My mom was a school teacher. Neither one of them, bless their hearts, they're amazing people. But neither one of them can carry a tune that well. You know it. It was a musical household in the sense that there were my dad listened to classical music a lot. So I remember him listening mm. to Beethoven recordings and and then it was a very bookish household. You know, he was always a deep reader widely, you know, history, politics, and he's the one who got me interested in science fiction, which really set that sense of wonder is uh, I have a document I should send you about my ecu music that I've been creating that kind of explains some of this, but you know, that, that concept of sense of wonder of being in a place you've never been before, where your whole your whole sense of what is real or not is kind of pulled out from under you. That's like a holy grail for science fiction writers. And that's been a part of my consciousness since I was like 11 years old. And then but what this means growing up in Idaho is that there, there was no there, there was actually kind of a very traditional classical music scene because mm-hmm. there was a large Mormon population in my town. Mm. Um, and the Mormons in general are quite supportive and enthusiastic about the arts and especially classical music. So we actually had a youth orchestra. We had the adult orchestra. And then I was playing in the school jazz bands. I was playing in rock bands. And I started doing solo marimba recitals by the time I was about 16. But at that point, my goal was to be like the Glenn Gould of Bach, <laughs> which I think Pius Chung kind of or, or Gwen Burgett Thrasher de- definitely – took that mantle it's not me yeah gwen gwen is a lot more uh publicly private with her playing um than pi than pius is but that yeah, pius with the bench and the scarf 
and listen, I say the bench and the scarf because like I can't dare talk about his playing because it's just so ridiculous. You know, I'm not of course off the rails. Of course. And yeah. and listen, I I studied Bach on Marimba in at Yale a lot with Joan Panetti and it was like some of the best like education I got on music in general. But I am very hard on anyone who plays Bach, like a student of mine. Like I have very high standards and like Pius is one of the few people who, when I hear him play and, and Gwen, of course, but like who, when I hear them play Bach, I'm like, okay, you, there's, there's like nothing in your way here. Yeah. And the same with Jihei, like when, when Jihei plays con variations or something, it's like, there's nothing actually stopping you right now. And that's, that's cool. And I, I, I like that, and yeah. I'm supportive of that. No, the the Bach, you know, I just did an interview with Pius the other day, and the the Bach is, I mean, it just flows through him. You know, when when he recorded the cello suites last year, he went in the studio and did all of them in one day from memory. Mm-hmm. And then he got home and he decided they were a few of them were too fast, so he went in the next day and did all of them again from memory, mm-hmm. a little slower. I mean, and the interesting thing with Pius is he learns all that music before he even gets to the instrument. So basically by the time he comes to the marimba, he can always already play the piece. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, you know, the, the, the result of me growing up in Idaho in a non-musical family is that I had to figure out music myself to a certain extent. Now I had teach, I had a good teacher, a guy named Richard Landauer who got me started right. And I will be forever indebted to him. Um, but nonetheless, I was kind of on my own. And so mm-hmm. I found John Cage's silence when I was 16. I first read that. At the same time, I was playing all Bach recitals on marimba, you know, not really knowing how to play Bach, but like doing what I could, you know, from recordings. And then when I went to University of Michigan for my undergrad, I actually, I was in this pilot program that Ed Sarath and Stephen Rush had put together. And my degree from there is a BFA in jazz and contemporary media. Mm. But when I was at Michigan, I was doing everything. I was playing in U Dallas Percussion Ensemble. I was playing in the Wind Ensemble with H. Bob Reynolds. And then I was playing in the free improv group that Ed Sarath ran. We had um, we had some heavy jazz cats there. Gerald Cleaver was there, and I took some drum set lessons from him. Um, we had Donald Walden, who unfortunately has passed away, but he was this amazing post kind of hard bop player out of Detroit mm-hmm. who was there. Um, we had some other folks who came in who came from more of the free world. And so I was doing all this free improv. I was also playing an African drumming ensemble with Mark Stone and Bernard Woma was overseeing that. He would drop in. Uh, it was like all over the map. And it just never occurred to me that I had to do sort of one thing or the other. Mm. Well, you're, I, want, I do want to sort of highlight here. Like I feel like – and I'm, I'm very fortunate too uh, in my – just the path I managed to bump through like – when I think back of schools, university settings where there was a real hub of activity happening, um, like I think, you know, for me, the University of Akron in the steel band world has, a, there's a lot of energy there. University of Michigan with Mike Udow, University of Illinois, um, Eastman School of Music. I mean, there's like, there, and there's there's a ton, but like they're, they're in that time, like those were places where that stuff was not, because John Cage had also come through like with Black Mountain and like, he was he was in they were at they were at University of Illinois for a while like that scene was sort of uh, very experimental but I think over time some places universities got more more calcified for the orchestral route and then training people to go teach at colleges and in order to teach yeah. at colleges you needed a doctorate um, in order to get an orchestra job you needed 
to have taken 75 auditions or to have studied with Tom Freer. It was like, those were the, those were the only, that's the, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not trying to cast a value judgment here, but when I was in school, that was the truth. Like that was yeah. the binary choice, you know, if you wanted a job that had health insurance and had a pension. And those, yeah, exactly. And I managed to be, I was sort of a little smart and a lot lucky in that I figured out by the time I was a sophomore at Michigan that I did not want to go into a military band. I definitely didn't want to be an orchestral player. There's just no way. I have way too much creative energy and I just don't have the nerves for it. You Which know, is I weird just, because the orchestral world, this is the thing. Like it's the oldest vein in the sort of um, – it's the oldest part of the tree in terms of the, yeah. the, to the classical percussion world. Which then I unfortunately means that by default, it's the most conservative part of the tree. But it hasn't always been like, and it's actually not because when you look at people who like Alan Abel, uh, the entire Philadelphia percussion section, all those guys, Cleveland, Cloyd Duff, like those guys were making their own mallets. They needed stuff. They were experimenting. You know, Cloyd Duff would open his thing and there'd be like 75 different sets of mallets there. Like, that's not different than what you're doing right now, bro. Like, you know, and Tom Freer, like, say what you want about any methodologies. He has got like 75 different mutes for every piece. Like, that's that's a tinkerer, you know. And unfortunately, because the job market is now like winnowing and becoming a more sort of deepened groove on how to actually get in an orchestra. It starts to turn me off. I took one audition and was like, no, 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 no. I am not doing that ever again. And But you know what? Some of my my favorite experiences on stage, Mahler 2 when I was in grad school with Jamie Dietz playing triangle and I was playing uh, bass drum and uh, playing man-made with the L.A. Phil. Orchestras right. are awesome. They're awesome you if, you're in, if, if, if you're, you're in them. If you're in the right <laughs> yeah. leadership. Yeah. You know, I I had a one of the highlights of my career was way back in 2010 or 11. I had written a concerto for percussion and chamber orchestra, which I did with Alarmal Sound. Three or four times we played that piece, and every time it was a transcendent experience. But then I got asked to come out and do it with the LA Phil players, and I didn't know what to expect. You know, I mean, I knew the LA Phil was a pretty progressive organization, but I still, you know, Alarmal Sound is one thing. You know, those cats are like really. You know, it's like so percussion, like they're on the it's f- a, tip of the spear, yeah, right? It's a different thing. But man, the LA Phil was incredible. The players were totally open-minded and they were meticulously prepared for the rehearsal. And it was one of the best nights of my entire career. And so, yeah, it very much depends on the organization. But um, yeah, so I, you know, you mentioned calcification. I, I do think that's one of the, you know, one of the beautiful things about percussion now is, is that we have a repertoire. One of the problems with percussion is that we have a repertoire. Right. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't, and this is just a tip of the hat to people. Like we look back, you know, at our old teachers, you know, listen, I'm, I, I had days where I'm just like, he's a complete charlatan, you know, like studying with Bob or Larry Snyder. Like my, these are people that have made me who I am. But the, when they were students, it was ballet of the unhatched chicks. That's all you could play. There was nothing. Mitch Peters. Nothing. Mitch Peters, maybe. Um, Anthony Cerrone. There's the snare drum book. There's also an accompanying mallet book that is the exact same rhythms, just with pitches. Like, 
conceptually, that's kind of awesome. Like, I love that idea. But like, nobody plays. Nobody plays that. It's all on snare drum now. It's like we've even calcified that. Like, we've gotten rid of. Like, that's a kind of an awesome thought experiment. Like, we're gonna have a series of method books all using the exact same rhythm but on different instruments. You know. But like, even that's gotten like, no, 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 no. That's too silly. Like, and. But but over time, people like Bob, uh, Bill Mersh, Nancy Zeltzman, Rebecca Kite, like people have have really started getting new repertoire in, and we sort of look back at them and we're just like, oh, how dare they? Or I can't believe you did, or I can't believe this was the way it was, and how this is so stupid that they were like that. It's like, imagine going to school and being like, there's two pieces I can play, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, or, or wait, I have to I have to play John Philip Sousa marches. Right. Yeah. We've come a long ways and it's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm so happy, especially when I have really talented, eager students that we have so much great rep to work. I mean, we simply don't have enough time to even get through a fraction of it at this point. But the thing is, it's, you know, teaching improvisation and creative compositional work is, I think, this is just my opinion, but to me, it's in some ways harder and more work than teaching repertoire. Mm. Um, at least, at least with the student population that I'm working with. But why it's, do you say it's, that? Well, I mean, because the repertoire, there's so much that that is sort of already fixed and understood. It's it's like a clear job, you know. Right. I mean, mm. yes. So if someone brings in, let's say they're trying to play time for marimba. Of course, there are miles and miles of nuance that you can get into with this and that and the other thing. But the basic job of getting the notes and the rhythms put together and making a presentation of it is pretty simple. And, you know, there are pretty established ways to go about practicing all that, which I've been lucky, you know, that I learned how to the chunk method and all that stuff that we learned in school. And I pass that on to my students. and, And those are tried and true ways. They work. And the students who do them get better and they play the pieces pretty well. But when you're doing open improvisation with students, I mean, in some ways you could say it's easier because they don't have to stress out so much about missing notes or memory slips or whatever. But in some ways it's a lot harder because everything is on their shoulders. You know, every, or if you're improvising as a group, everything is on collectively your shoulders. I mean, there's nothing to hang your hat on. You're responsible for form. You're responsible for timbre. You're responsible for tension and release density. Every parameter of music you have to handle and juggle and manipulate. And that requires a lot of maturity and it requires exposure to vast amounts of music, which most 18 year olds don't have. You know, most of them, they have not heard Anthony Braxton, you know, they don't know who that person is, let alone Stravinsky. Many of them haven't really ever listened to Beethoven, for that matter. And so, you know, I think, and it's like, of course, you know, I've worked through the Diabelli variations and all, you know, all this great music from the past and the present, and all that filters into my improvising and creative work, but they don't yet have that grammar. So at the same time that you're trying to actually make music, you're also trying to help them build grammar. It's a lot of work. Well, this is the, I mean, in some ways it's easier to sit there and just nitpick a De La Cluse etude than it is to actually do that. Yeah, well, and the problem, again, like the the thing I think if somebody's like, what did you learn? Give me like one sentence about what you learned by being in soap percussion. I'm on my deathbed. I'm 80. Hopefully I make it to be like my late 80s and I'm like, here's what I learned. It's that, um, now I'm trying to say it in one sentence. Um, composers 
have a very complicated process. And for you to understand any music, you need to be, you need to have at least tried to be a composer or met with a real one. And here's why I say that, because for me, I mean, this is, these are very inside baseball sort of uh, references here. But when I learned that Two Mexican Dances was a transcription of an improv that Gordon Stout did, all of a sudden, all of his, like those weird polyrhythmic stuff that happens in the second movement or whatever, like where it goes like, and you're trying, I'm at home being like four over three, how do I fit a triplet in that? And like, oh my Christ. And, and. I wish Gordon Stout would also now publish a companion lead sheet. Huh. That is yeah. like, here's the most important thing you need to get from this fucking improv. Here's what I was trying to tell you 30 years ago. Like a sort of Shankarian, you know. Just a chord changes. One, four. The essentials. It's, it's yeah. in C. C major. F. G7. There's an F in that chord. Put make The F has got to be there, motherfuckers. Like, like, like put, <laughs> just make a lead sheet for us. So that, yeah. and then actually, because that, I mean, I'm not saying that was Gordon's process, but I wish, I think students would play that, would have more respect for the piece, would understand how hard it is, knowing that Gordon just tossed that off. I mean, not yeah. that he didn't pre-compose some things. Again, I don't know his whole process here, but like knowing that Cherry Blossoms, knowing that uh, Keiko Abe improvises everything. <laughs> like she just knows Sakura. Because she's been, it's been in her bones since she was a child, and so when she plays Cherry Blossoms, you're you're never going to be able to look at the score. You're constantly going to be like, wait, what, ha, what, who, what, you know, ha, ha. you know. And when you when you hear people who have studied with her, Bob Van Sice for one, Jason Truding, like who approach that music, it's a lead sheet. Yeah. So why don't we talk about that? Why don't in history classes? Why don't we talk about Bach as being a modern day Questlove? And why do I say that? Why? Because Questlove is super smart. Yeah, yeah. He's got a gig every night where he's got to be in charge of 180 tunes at, at the drop of a hat. Also plays with his other band. Also has his other thing. Probably and has a family. You know what else about Bach? He had 26 kids. You know? like And he had a gig every Sunday. Like, I don't give a fuck about parallel octaves. The fact that he had 26 kids makes his whole life be like, what? Like, I'm far more <laughs> impressed. Then I want to learn about, like, why f figured bass now makes more sense to me. Why? Because he had 26 kids. He had to shorthand some stuff. You don't have time. You got a yeah. choir here, and they're showing up, and you got 10 minutes before the church comes in, you know? And so it's like, oh, okay. All right. So learning a little bit about I, – I just feel like that's where the education system has failed me is music history yeah. is taught with no context. It's taught with learn this date. I don't know when I don't know when Bach was born. I couldn't tell you. 1600s? Uh, 1685. Thank you. Well, at least I was in the right century. Um <laughs> I don't Mozart 1700s, 1750s is that my close like Mahler uh, late 1800s, <laughs> Wagner early 1800s, mid 18 I'm terrible at this stuff. That's my point. The yeah. fact that Wagner had like was embraced by the Nazis. Like if that was taught in music class, not that I would not listen to Wagner. I'd be like, Oh, and that's how Bruckner got roped into that whole scene. Okay. All right, cool. All right. Like that Paul Hawkshot at Yale was the first person who talked about like the Nazis with Bruckner and how Bruckner sort of got co-opted and he, he wasn't supportive of that, but his music, it's like, wait a minute, that can, Oh, then Shostakovich. It's like, Oh my God, all these people, like it all makes so much sense. And, I learned about that when I was like 32. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. Well, you know, the sometimes I, I feel like everything I gained, you know, I gained a lot from the conservatory. But there's also a sense sometimes that, you know, it's taken me a while to sort of recover from it in a certain sense. Oh, man, totally. I feel like a total schmuck saying that because that's definitely a rich white privilege kind of statement. There's no question about it. I mean, I was extremely fortunate to be able to have access to the education I had. And I've seen enough of the world to realize, you know, that there, there was a lot of privilege that I, I had. Totally. So I don't in any way mean to say I'm not grateful for it. I am grateful for it. But, you know, it's true. You go through conservatory and, and it, at least for me, I, I, this may not be for everyone, but for me, the issue is that sometimes, um, you know, sometimes I felt like over as I got out in the world, there was always this question of, well, is it OK to do this or should I do this? Mm -hmm. or, and I think there's a certain neurosis that comes out of the conservatory. And my take on that, my feeling is that that has a lot to do with the fact that you're engaging with this idea of a canon. I do think there's a use in a canon. You know, Rob Haskins is a friend of mine. He's a, a keyboard player and, and um, musicologist, teaches at University of Vermont. And he once said, which I agree with, he said, you know, the canon is useful because it gives all of us who are professional musicians, it gives us a basic context for discussion and, and, and for engagement. That's true. And so all the time I spent studying, you know, Bach and so on and so forth, I, I'm really grateful for. But on the other hand, what can happen to creative people, and it happened to me, is that you can get into this kind of neurosis about the, what the masterpiece syndrome. It's like, well, you know, I, I know I'm not a major composer. Man, I'm, I don't even think I'm a minor composer. So should I even bother, you know? And it really can suck the life out of you. Mm -hmm. The thing is, all through school, every single day, those little hints are dropped to us. Yeah. It's like, you know, well, today we're going to look at Bruckner, a major composer. And then if someone says, well, I've been checking out this piece by Orlando Gibbons. It's like, yeah, he's kind of a minor composer. But if you like that piece, that's fine. Anyway, let's go back to talking about Palestrina. You know, so. Well, listen, on my, on, my MMA, on my MMA exam at, at Yale, I had, I mean, and well, listen, everything you're saying and everything I'm saying, like, let's also, just when you were speaking to the privilege aspect, like, if I was a black person, having any of the experiences I had in school, it double, you know, there's just, there's things that we, we both just, our whiteness greased the skids in some respects that, you know, I'm, I was completely blind to, and quite frankly, I'm still blind to today in many regards, but, but I had people say things to me that were just straight up offensive not not about me as a person but like i went in to get advice on how to um i won't say names but i went in to get advice on how to like do better on the mma exam and the professor sat there and he's like where'd you go to school i said the university of akron he said you will not pass this exam i was like what, <laughs> do, you mean, what do you mean he's like i know where you went to school you're not going to pass this like all of the presumptions that come with that statement of like, wow, I'm from a dumb, I'm a dumb white kid from rural Ohio. Like there's no, I'm a, I'm a rube, like there's no way I'm going to get this, but good luck. Like at that moment I was like, well, that, I mean, listen, also to be clear, he wasn't wrong. I definitely didn't pass the exam. <laughs> you know, like I think, I think the reasons why I didn't pass weren't why he thought I wasn't going to pass. But at the end of the day, he was right. I didn't pass the exam, but I remember being like, oh, wow. Okay you think about me a different way because I'm from somewhere else. And I I've seen that in other worlds, like the steel band world. That's interesting that, that you're saying you, a white person is saying this to another white person. Fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. I also had experiences where, where there was just nothing but generosity, you know, where 
I was, I was ignorant. I remember Joan Panetti. I've told the story a million times, but it's important to me. Like I, we were sitting in class. She studied with, with Olivia Messian, like worked with the man. And she's like, all right, today we were talking about the quartet for the end of time. And I was like, is this the bird calls? <laughs> she's like, what? And I was like, I, I have no idea about this piece. Never heard of it. She's like, you've never heard of Messian. I was like, no, I could tell you some obscure stuff about Calypso music from the early 1920s. <laughs> if you want to know that, you want to know about Roaring Lion and Mighty Sparrow and some of these folks, but like, I got nothing on Messian. And she looked at me and she's like, after class, my office. And I was like, I was like, I'm done. This is my, like my first week at Yale, you know? And she took me in her office. We sat down. She put a record on and was like quivering with excitement to talk me through when, you know, why the instrumentation for Quartet for the End of Time is what it is because of the being in a concentration camp during Nazi Germany. Why the different, ref- what the religious references mean in that piece. And she's like, oh, wait, just wait. She was like, I have never experienced anyone in my life to this date who has ever taught me with such blatant, raw generosity and excitement. Mm. You know, so like in one hand in this institution, I can have somebody just punch me in the face for no fucking reason and say something just so judgmental. And then on the other hand, so in a sense, it's like what these institutions do, how they calcify is just so it's kind of unpredictable in ways, but it's, I see what you're saying. Like, but in a weird way, Peyton. I'm also the way I am because I bounced off those parts of the system and was like, I'm, yeah, all right, F you then, you know, and now that's why soap percussion exists. I mean, because everybody in soap percussion at some point or another bumped off of some system and was like, that's a silly goose way of doing that, you know? And so anyway, just to say, like, I'm agreeing with you, but it's, there's also an upside to not, to discomfort. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think the the big thing with the the masterpiece syndrome, uh, you know, to go back to that is that it can it, it can inhibit work. And mm-hmm. you know where I really got going on. I mean, I've always been of the mind like I have always produced a lot of work. That's something Alan Pearson used to tell me in Alarmal Sound. You know, because we had another member of the group who had the opposite problem. Like he would obsess over pieces and he could never finish them because mm-hmm. he was so like he just couldn't release something. Mm-hmm. Whereas I had, I almost just released too much, you know, I put stuff out and then sometimes I'm like a year later, nah, I think I'll take that one back. Mm-hmm. The thing is I find, you know, part of this is I, I reconnected with an old friend of mine that I mentioned earlier, Mike Winkleman, he's a visual artist. He's having a big moment right now because he, he, um, the whole nifty world has picked up on his stuff and he's making millions or literally mm-hmm. millions right mm-hmm. now selling his art through the NFT system. But the thing that he did in 2007 is he started making a piece of digital artwork every day. It's part of the everyday's movement, which visual artists have been doing now since basically since Instagram kind of came about. And he hasn't missed a day since. So he has, I checked this morning, 5,051 pieces of visual art. So even the days his kids were born, the day he got married, every day he produced a piece of art. And what he talks about in interviews um, and, and what he and I have talked about a little bit in our private communication is that, you know, you get to a point where the creativity becomes normalized Mm. and you stop worrying about, you just stop giving a fuck. Like what other people think about it, you become more connected to just producing work. And you know, some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. And a lot of it's going to be completely ignored. You know, for years, his stuff was completely ignored. He's having a moment now, but you have to realize there were years where he was putting out these things every day and he was getting like, 
you know, maybe 30 engagements. Now he has, I think, 1.8 million Instagram followers. You know, wow. he's, he's like a big deal. But the point that was influenced, you know, Mike, I will say Mike's work influenced me a lot, especially with this Marimba project I'm doing now, because I got to a point where I realized I had the chops in every sense, not just physically, but I mean, in every sense, and also including knowing Ableton well enough and having a rig where I could start producing music at a, at a pace that was much more aggressive. And so I set up this kind of artificial deadline of doing a full recording every week. And it's been great. The deeper I get into it, the less of a fuck I give about what the rest of the yeah. percussion world or anyone well, thinks. This and that's beautiful. But that took some bouncing off because that's not what I was taught in school. Right. Well, I'm taught in school is you don't release it unless it's a masterpiece. Well, that's I mean, this is the this is everything you're saying is the exact reason why I started doing concert honesty posts five years ago or whenever it was like I just I couldn't deal with the pressure of feeling like my students thought I was like I've just done it more than them. That's it. Like I've just gotten better at recovering from mistakes, but this idea that somebody could watch and be like, that was perfect. It's like, you have no idea how bad that was or how close that was to disaster, you know? And so I kind of just wanted to spell it out and be like, this is not like, because for me, it was that like when you only are seen like once or you only put one thing out, that's when people are like, well, this must be the thing. Right. No, it's not. It's not the thing. This is the only, the thing I've rehearsed in school for three months. Like, that's all it is. And I'm only going to play it for you once. What I want to show you, the thing I want to show you is how much better I've gotten at that. I've done that thing 50 times. I've played Rain Tree 50 times. Yes, I completely had a memory slip the first time. But did you hear the 33rd time where I actually played all of the right notes? Like, that's, <laughs> did you hear that? And did you hear the part where I, where I did get lost, but I hadn't learned it well enough that I got back on just three bars later? Like, those are the sorts of, so I started putting up sight reading stuff on my Bandcamp page. I have, I challenged to do three a day and I would just sight read, put up real book, page one on, on pan. And I would just be like, I'd give myself two minutes to look at it. I would hit the space bar. I would play one take, hit the space bar again, turn the page. Wow. I haven't checked that out. Check out it's, it's, there's a bunch of, so there's did a, you feel like it got you more engaged with the process rather yes. than the product? Well, it was, it was because, well, yeah, because I, I didn't want to have any emotional like because at that time it was also like Donald Trump got nominated and I was just like engaged in everything politics MSNBC Fox like I was just like Duh! and I was like I gotta have I gotta spend time doing something that's gonna help me and isn't gonna hurt me <laughs> and uh, and I need to and it's just gonna get my brain sort of back to operating like where the where the ball bearings are a little more they're clean now you know everything's back to like working order yeah. and. Have was, your, sorry to interrupt, but have your students been checking all this out? And how, how are they responding? If I so? send them stuff from time to time when, like, if, if one of them is having a particular issue of, like, just, like, at-bats is, like, a thing for them, like, I'll send them to that page. Or if they're having real insecurity about something original they're doing, I'll just be like, go check this out and see. It's all warts and all. And they're all one take. They're all unedited. Um, and I think I got to, like, 912. I didn't quite get all the way to whatever 3 well, times 365 would be. But it was... Um, yeah, the process was all, you know, and there's maybe 20 tracks on that, on all of them that I would clip out and be like, yeah, ain't going to get better than that, folks. You know, like, but the rest of it is all just like, yeah, this is, you know why Charlie Parker is awesome? Not because he's a genius. Do you know why John Coltrane is amazing? Not because he's a genius. It's because there's a book. 
that has every possible inversion of every possible chord that humans have ever written out, and he memorized them all. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? You know the difference between you and him? You didn't. Yeah. So, and the story, you know, I, I have a colleague at William Patterson who uh, is a, a Coltrane aficionado, and mm-hmm. he tells a great story that is true as far as we know that Coltrane and his wife went to dinner with some friends, and they were having dinner, and they got to dessert, and, and Coltrane said, you know, he said, I, I just, I'm working on something in my head, I just need a few minutes. And he took his horn, and he went upstairs, and he came down two hours later, um, and they you know, hung out a little more. And then he went and did the three set gig and then came home and went to bed and then got up and was shedding again. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, I still, he's really one of my greatest avatars just because he was on a continual quest of just engagement with the process. And he was continually growing and pushing. And, you know, you look at his early recordings, they're fantastic. I love his later recordings, his last couple of recordings, you know, and, and things like Interstellar Space. That's a, I love that recording. And he was just, and some, he, you know, a lot of the jazz critics at that point had give, basically given up on him. They said, you know, what has he done? He's mm-hmm. gone off the deep end. This doesn't sound like jazz anymore. And he didn't care. He was just, he was, he was in a different space. It's real. And I think that's why there's a church of John Coltrane, you know, in, in San Francisco, because it's not so much what he was producing. It's the fact that he was producing. But this is the thing for me why education fails. Because in my schooling, I, I, there was this weird culture between the jazzers and the orchestral percussionists. And because there was this weird sense that one was doing something the other couldn't do. Like there was yep. jazz was doing something that the orchestral percussionists couldn't do. The jazz, jazzers could play orchestral music. It wasn't but the other way around. There was some mystery or some mystique because of people like John Coltrane who are these like seemingly like, good Lord, like how, how or Miles Davis, like what way, what, how are you an alien? Like, but again, every chord and every inversion. And he just opened that book. Page one. It's like, like why it's not a mystery. And that's like that's the stuff with education that really bothers me. And you know, and and again, like just to tie it back a little bit to to your dad, like when you mentioned that you didn't grow up in a musical household, um, but you grew up like nuclear science. I'm sort of like tas- or like quietly obsessed with like quantum entanglement and nuclear physics and astrophysics and stuff. It is one of the most creative and tinkering sort of fields I think I've ever read about. They're constantly trying to figure stuff out and they're constantly yeah. being like, point the telescope over there. <laughs> you know, like, like the Hubble deep field. Do you know that's that picture? No, I haven't seen that. There's picture. a picture of the, the Hubble telescope is like, there's a, there's a chairperson who's in charge of it for like a year who gets elected by a body of others, you know, uh, astrophysicists. And so they're in charge and they manage the time. But with this privilege comes like five hours a month where they get to do whatever they want. They can point the telescope right at the ground and look at ants all day if they wanted to. And I don't know who the person was. I can't remember off the top of my head. But I, I think it was a woman. And she just was like, let's point it there. Just like a dark spot that nobody had ever seen anything. And when they focused it in, it, they they took an image that's now called the, the Hubble Deep Field. And what appeared were like hundreds of thousands of galaxies that no one even knew existed. Yeah. 
you know, and they're all spot like Google it. It is insane. Because a random scientist was just like, I got five hours. Like point it over here. Yeah. And then you know, and it opened up like the war like the universe. You know? And so like just I'm sorry, like you you grew up in a household, it makes total sense to me, Peyton, that you have ping pong balls tied to your mouth. <laughs> like it all makes yeah, total sense yeah, to yeah. me now that you that you, you told me your dad was a nuclear scientist, you know. Well, you know, my, my friend Sean Matovetsky once told me, he said, you know, the whole thing with the world that we're involved in that, you know, you, Josh and Sean and myself and so many of our, our dear friends, it, it is a giant science experiment of sorts. And mm. I, it took me a while, you know, there, there's some of the music I've produced, I feel is genuinely beautiful in a way that, that where you actually feel these sort of stirrings in your heart. Some of the music I've produced is maybe not beautiful, but it's, it's certainly interesting and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. You know, I, I, there's a, there's a, in our culture and in, and in my worldview, the things that I value, there's definitely a place for sonic experiments that are interesting. You know, that's why Elliot Sharp, for example, has become a, not just a good friend, but like a huge, a, really a mentor to me in many, many ways, because Elliot's whole life and career has been based on that. If you, if you haven't yet, check out his book he just released about his life and his process. It's a good read. I don't know the book, but I, we did a – Bobby Previtt wrote a piece for so-called Terminals. Uh-huh. It's five movements and it's percussion quartet with improviser and you know, Zena Parkins and Jen Shu and Bob, uh, John Modeski. Nels Klein has played with us once, but we recorded it, I believe, with Elliot Sharp. And <laughs> we performed with him, I think, at the ICA in Boston and he was incredible. Yeah, and that that's his whole, you know, he also comes from a science background because he had studied science in college a bit. But I, I think in that way, we, we all connect, you know, like when I look at what like what the amazing work Greg Byers doing with his Arco musical project, you know, that's another example of, I'm just thinking of that because one of his emails crossed my desk yesterday. But, uh, you know, it's another example, you know, Greg is the same way, like he's, he's always kind of asking, what could we do? What's possible? Where have we not been yet sonically? And yeah, that's what gets me. That's what gets me so excited, and I'm okay if I, I produce a track that isn't maybe beautiful, but it is interesting because that is part of the whole conversation. Well, you know, and maybe you'll listen to it, and, and you'll it might spark something in your mind that maybe comes through in your snare drumming or your steel pan or maybe a commission that you organize. You know, we don't know where all these connections end up. Right. Well, let me ask you. I mean, I've I've stolen about an hour of your time here, Peyton, and I want to be respectful. Um, and I I just have like one sort of final thing I want to ask you about. I you have a, an album of Anthony Braxton's music that released today. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And I was listening through it, and one of the things that I don't know how to say this without it. It's not going to sound like a compliment, but please take it as one. Um, what bummed me out about hearing your recording was that I wish all of your Facebook posts sounded as good as your recording does, meaning the quality. The quality of the recording of the Braxton's, I don't know Braxton's music at all, to be clear. And so I have no idea if you're, if, if the music you're playing, if you're doing it well, it sounds amazing to me. Like it's totally like engaging, but I feel like one of the things that you did so well with this record that is extra Braxton is not his contribution. If, if I'm not mistaken, is the way you mixed it and recorded the panning is incredible. I f- I hate those old recordings that are just mono or it's just a little bit left and right and it's just like right right you're just getting hit like right here. And there's some stuff like you uh, I don't remember which track it was where there's some fast marimba stuff that feels like it's in the same range but you pan the two things so it's like 
like bouncing around your ears. Anyway, I just wanted to compliment you on that and and then Thank also you. beg you to figure out how to make your Facebook improvs sound like you need I'm sorry, bro. It'll, you need to record those with the same thing because it's absolutely striking what you how you recorded the Braxton stuff. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, you know, a lot of the stuff I throw up on social media, I just do with my phone. I mean, I, I know. I'm just, I understand yeah. the limitations, but I was, I was struck by how, how high quality the... Well, thanks. Well, you know, I started learning Ableton back in 2012, I think. And so now it's been almost nine years and I've worked through several iterations of that program. And along the way, I've, you know, one of the nice things at William Patterson is we have a really good sound engineering mm-hmm. program. And my colleague who runs it is a lovely person. He's an amazing musician and he's very generous with his knowledge. And so I'm always, every time I'm in the studio with him, I'm at like, how do you do this? How, what's that? What, why are you compressing that? You know, why? And then the students, man, by the time they're seniors, they know that gear inside now. And so every, literally, Josh, every day I'm up at, just yesterday I was up at work having a, a fairly in-depth discussion with one of my seniors about buffering. Uh, you know, and these kinds of things, like it's quite geeky and we stand in the hallway and we talk about this stuff. So Mixing is composing. That's the thing I learned is when I started getting deep into mixing, I was like, and then the first time I made my first uh, EDM recording, which you can find on Bandcamp, it's actually called Idaho. I just released it a few weeks ago. Um, That was in 2019. I made that recording and I went really deep into mixing for that recording. I mean, I, I sent that to a bunch of professionals and had them give me feedback. I watched, I don't know, so many hours of tutorials and read so many books and and it's, it's straight up and down orchestration and composing. There's no other way to put it. And that's why, you know, you find some of these old crusty professors at the university who are teaching composition can be very dismissive of popular music. But it's because they don't know. They don't know anything about mixing. Of course, Britney Spears, you know, the melodic and harmonic content is not going to rival what Stravinsky was doing. But you don't listen to her music with that in mind. What you listen to her music with, I mean, aside from the fact that her music is meant to be played on a dance floor or part of a party, you know, it's, there's a context there. Mm-hmm. But more importantly for us, when we listen to Britney Spears, it's because of the production. Right. There's like, you, you know, learning listen about to it that way. All of a sudden it becomes very, very interesting. Right. You learn. I mean, if you can if you can hold your thought, hold a thought in your head such as, oh, you mean a conductor of an orchestra is kind of like a live mixer who's constantly turning things up and down for the composer's intent so that in the audience you can hear it. Like you're hearing sound in in three dimensions. And yeah, what little I know about what the difference is between a recording engineer, what a producer does, then you have to master it. What do you mean you got to master it? Why why doesn't the guy who mixed it, what, he gets off the hook at some point? He doesn't have to finish it? Like what the fuck are you talking about? And then you're like, oh, mastering is like all this stuff so that when you're riding in your car versus sitting in your home, like things are level out. And that's why when you listen to some records, they're wasted. You're like, why is this record from 1953 so soft? You know, why why is Creedence Clearwater Revival so much softer than listening to, you know, Kendrick Lamar? Mastering, mastering, mastering expectations have changed. They have, and the technology's changed. And, you know, I I mean, honestly, I really appreciate your compliment because I do put a lot of time and energy into the mixing. I have like five sets of headphones and my my studio monitors, and I go around all that stuff. I don't try to mix in such a way, like most pop music is mixed in such a way that it will be pretty successful on any platform. Mm -hmm. So check out a Kendrick Lamar recording and you use crappy earbuds 
or you use $20,000 speakers or you put it in your car, it will sound pretty good on all those platforms because it's mixed that way. I actually don't mix that way. I mix in such a way because I Dude, very few people listen to my music. And the people who do are most likely going to be have a good pair of headphones, a nice beer or a cup of coffee, and they're going to actually listen in a focused way. So I listen, I, I mix with that in mind. Mm-hmm. But I do put a lot of time and energy into the mixing. I would say, and mastering, I would give myself, you know, maybe a B plus. I don't, there's still the science part of it that I'm a little hazy in some areas because mm-hmm. it gets quite, you know, in depth in terms of physics and digital conversion and everything else. Mm-hmm. I know enough to get by. Let me put it that way. But I could not, I could not function as a, well, you know, I'm, a I'm, studio person. No, I'm at the point now where it's like I, I'm at the limitations of what I know of compression, and I'm at the limitations of what I know about like phasing of mics, and because now I've got like I got a good sort of um, REA mic that I don't even know what the name of it is, but it's like a it's a big like beautiful ribbon mic, and so like oh cool like and it's like oh wow this is awesome for all these things. And now I have to figure this other thing out. Damn it. It's like, you know, <laughs> yes. like, um, when you get, it's like when you get a really good snare drum and you're like, wait a minute, it responds like that. You're like, Oh God, like my, my old CB 700 used to make every roll I did sound amazing, you know? Um, so, but anyway, just to say like, I, I think, uh, the, the most striking part, like, I just love that you, a lot of marimba recordings I hear, it's like what you're hearing a marimba in space, but it's like on stage and you can sort of sit and you feel like you're, you have, you can sort of take a passive relationship with what you're hearing. Again, no value judgment here, but that's just been my experience. I can be like, Oh cool. Taurus three Merlin. But like your stuff, I'm just sort of like, what, who, where's that coming from? (laughs) Like, like I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm like strapped into my, my roller coaster and I'm like, clicking up the hill and I'm just being like, God damn it, Peyton, where are you taking me? You know? And I just <laughs> well, feel that's like great, man. That, I, I'm really I, honored. I, I don't know how you feel. I, I, you know, I feel the marimba is a funny instrument because in one, one way it's really big, but I always tell, I always tell composers when I'm commissioning pieces, I said, you got to think of it more like a classical guitar. And, and here's the thing, the way I approach marimba, I would say is closest to an electric guitar player. Mm. You know, the first time, again, back to Elliot Sharp, the first time I heard him do a solo electric guitar concert, it blew my freaking mind because it was like a symphony orchestra up there. He had so much sound going. He had this massive pedal board and everything. And then there's a guy out in Seattle named Bill Horst, also incredible. He and I were on a festival up in Canada last year, and he did a solo electric guitar concert. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, so what, what most of the time I hear marimba is it's like an acoustic guitar. So if you've ever been to an acoustic guitar right. recital... Right. You know, it's a fairly narrow timbral palette. Mm-hmm. It's soft. It's very like a very small contained sound. I think the marimba is the same way. Mm-hmm. The only reason we think it's not is because it's so darn big and requires so much movement. But if you actually close your eyes, it's a very, very small sound world. I get around that with all the multi-tracking, all the effects processing, all the mallets I build, all the preparations I do on the instrument. So my goal is that my marimba performances are much more like what you would hear an electric guitar player do. Well, an, an, electric, range. an electric guitar is a very limited thing until you plug it in. Like that's like <laughs> exactly. Paul, Les Paul and like Gibson, like those guys that were inventing this stuff. Was it, is it Les Paul that invented the electric guitar? I don't know. I, there's somebody like, I, th- I want to say it's Les Paul, but I'm happy to correct myself later, but let's say it's Les Paul. It was like, yeah, like you, you, you wanted to create something that you could then make whatever you want. 
And there's, that's like yes. when the limitations of the marimba or the steel drum, quite frankly. There's there's people, Tracy Thornton has been messing around, other players too, but messing around with contact mics on the bowl to make it into something, not quite the super marimba vibe where there's something on every note, but um, people are experimenting with that because it is. It's like a hard, I remember a Stuart Saunders Smith, I played a, an all steel drum recital and I premiered a, two pieces that he wrote. And he came in and he was just like, it's like going to a harpsichord concert. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like, it's awesome, but you're sort of only getting one dynamic the whole time, you know? And I was like, yeah. oh, that's a bummer. But then it's like, well, it's not, he's not wrong. Like, it's, there's, there is a pretty limited range before the drum starts to become in, like, unsuccessful, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I like, to me, I feel like your approach to the marimba is very 3D. And I, I just really like that. And, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, right. I just to be clear, I dropped the needle for about ten minutes and poked around. But those, you yeah, have, it's course. like an hour long album. So like, I, I'm gonna go back and check out the full thing um, here sooner than later. But man, I have really enjoyed chatting with you, Peyton, and I, I hope that um, we get to cross paths in, in person sooner than later. I don't know when in the hell that's gonna be, but uh, well, I did have my first shot, so I'm halfway there. Good. Good, good. Well, I can't wait. I mean, until once once we're allowed to meet in public and do all the things that we used to do, I can't wait to just tip a drink back and catch up. I mean, absolutely. And I, you know, if if you ever have the time and space to do any collaborative um, work together, I, I would love that. I have a whole series of collaborate. You know, part of this marimba thing of recording something every week. Uh, it's ending up to be about half solo. And then I've got, I'm doing a dual project with Pedro Canero from uh, mm-hmm. Portugal in a few weeks. I'm doing a project with Barry Guy. I don't know if you know his work. He's an incredible bass. You've got to check out his graphic scores, man. Okay. Uh, but he plays with Evan Parker and uh, like Peter Evans, a lot of those cats. Okay. A free scene over in Europe. But he's also, um, he's also a really amazing, like, legit quote-unquote legit classical player anyway i'm doing a project with him uh susie abara and i are working on something we're just getting the logistics worked out but i've got like a whole series of stuff and um so if you're ever interested you know if you want to maybe do a steel pan god that would be an amazing recording man we could talk about that but i'm down um, well here's here's my here's the here's my stipulation i'm a big fan of i mean if you look at my band camp page you can see like i'm a big fan of trying to figure out how to make a tune with very little preparation. Like if I had a gun held to my head and had to entertain somebody at a party, like, could I do it? And I feel like Peyton, our duo should be like, if you guys have a gun held to your head in two real books, can the two of you remotely collaborate and write a tune together in like one hour? Like what? I don't know. Some interesting. Yeah, we could do that. Some uh, in the spirit of process, you know, like also just to lower the bar for ourselves a lot. I feel like if if there is some weird weird process of like you are only allowed to work on your your track your video whatever it is you're you're the accompaniment whatever it is you are only allowed to work on it for an hour I'm only allowed to work on my thing for an hour and then we got to piece them together and put it up like to me something like that feels more interesting than trying to to do a big elaborate thing right now but um, that's just totally yeah absolutely you know it's like I said. Uh, the, you know what I mentioned earlier that this idea of, of producing work and not caring so much about the masterpiece syndrome, I, I want to be careful about that because on the other hand, everything I release is absolutely the best work I can do at that moment. Totally, yeah. Yeah. But 
I'm going to release it and I'm going to move on. And, and sometimes some of these releases, like I did a quartet project. We recorded it remotely last year um, with Colin Stetson. I don't know if you know his yeah. work. Sax, sax player. Yeah, he, he worked with uh, Justin Vernon, Bon Iver, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he, uh, you should, if you haven't checked out his solo uh, bass sax stuff, man, man, blow your mind, dude. Yeah, I'm a big fan of him. Mike's on his throat. He has them all over the sax. He's circular breeze. I mean, it's incredible. Anyway, there's a project I did with him and Billy, uh, Martin, and Elliot. We recorded a quartet thing that we did remotely, and that's like a long, slow, like eight-month kind of thing. Mm. But also very happy. Actually, Pedro Carnero and I, in, in two weeks, we're getting together, and we're doing kind of like exactly that. Like, we sent some emails back and forth. We set up a structure. We're coming in on a Saturday for three hours remotely. We're using Sonobus. I mean, he's in Portugal. Mm-hmm. We're laying down tracks. We're going to polish them up, release them, done. Like, you know, so, but that will be the best work we can do at that moment. So it's, it, there's nothing sloppy about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it took us each 40 years to get to that point. Yeah. But we're going to move quick and we're going to move on. Well, they you know, say, so yeah, you're up for quick. I'm good. This, well, there's been studies that show that you, businesses and people make better decisions when everybody has to pee. <laughs> and yeah. you know there's just because there's a there's an egg timer going and at some point everybody's just going to pee right in the room and so you got to make the call and usually people like you piece things you have less time to worry about things and so you're just sort of like uh okay and again i don't want i want to i don't want to be disingenuous here and say that's the way all art or music should be made not at all like yeah. sometimes so percussion has projects that we've st- we've just stared at for three years <laughs> you know like right. that happens yeah. too and that's okay but but I'm curious, just in the spirit of our conversation, putting our money where our mouth is and, and actually just showing people a little bit of this, how the sausage is made, I think is interesting. So anyway, listen, Peyton, uh, I'm glad you got that first dose. I uh, hope you get that second one and we can go out and, and toast and hug without any sort of anxiety because uh, I miss hugging more than anything from this me too, year. man. Me too. It's, I'm a hugger. I'm a handshaker and a hugger. That is how I – you know how I learn about people? I shake their hand. Well, there my, could be worse things to be. No, I know. Like, but just like my dad, my dad, when I was young, like we had a week where he taught me how to shake a hand. Huh. Like, and, uh, and it was just like too firm, too, too, too loose. Like, here's how you adjust. Oh, I felt you adjust. That was great. But you adjusted too much and I could feel you adjust over and over again. Like you weren't sure. And that, that might, my dad was a salesman and he's like, that might, that might make the person think you're, you're unsure. And if you're trying to sell them on something that you believe in. Like it was always about like, yeah, believe in what you're trying to sell, but you've got your, that's your first hello before you even say hello. Oftentimes is like a physical con. So this quarantine, like, I just feel like everybody I meet, I have no way of knowing who they are. And I know that's not rational. That's not like totally true, but I also can't see their face, you know? So I don't know if they're smiling or if they're pissed off or what, you know? So I have been absolutely lost for a year, Peyton. And I appreciate you having a conversation with me. This didn't mean to turn into my therapy session, but <laughs> no, man, I, thanks for having me on. I, you know, I've always admired your work and followed it and it's just so much fun to talk. And, um, yeah, I, I look forward to hanging out and hopefully making some music together. All right, buddy, right back at you. Stay healthy and uh, we'll chat soon. All right. Thanks, Josh. All right. See you. Later. Bye. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in So Percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. 
Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.